Opera acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connection to lands, waters, and communities. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders, past, present, and emerging. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of opera and the national boards. I'm Susan Bigger. Today, we're talking about kindness. There's been a movement in healthcare in recent years, highlighting the importance of kindness in the workplace for practitioners and, and the way that filters down to kindness for patients and families. So reflecting on that today, we're taking a, a look upstream to what's the role of kindness in how our health professions are regulated and what that might mean for our communities. We're fortunate to have two very experienced and wise people with us today for this conversation, Dr. Anna Vandergog and Dr. Valerie Braithwaite. Welcome, Anna and Val. Anna, can you introduce yourself? Delighted to be here with you and, and really excited about this conversation. Uh, I'm a visiting professor of ethics and regulation at the University of Surrey in the UK. Um, and I was the chair of the Health and Care Professions Council um, from 2006 to 2015. And I'm currently involved in some uh, research with APRA, looking specifically at the use of decision support tools in notifications. Um, but I have been heavily involved in, in, in studies of, of complaints and complaints handling since I left uh, my role at the HCPC. Thanks, Hannah. Great to have you here. And Valerie Braithwaite. I'm an emeritus professor at the Australian National University, and I'm interested in all things regulatory, um, and in particular from the perspective of how do we do regulation so that we increase the amount of trust that we have in our institutions. Anna, let's start with you. Can you begin by talking with us a, a little bit about what this kindness movement has looked like in healthcare in recent years? It's just fascinating to see how different kind of themes and, and, uh, and values emerge, you know, in healthcare. And actually, I think for me, this goes back to um, quality improvement um, and Don Berwick, uh, who I think posed some really challenging questions about how we engage more, more fully with patients, how we put patients at the center of, of care. So I'm talking, you know, probably a couple of decades back. And, and I think one of the things that came out of Don Berwick's work was this focus on what matters to you. So rather than asking a patient, you know, what, what's the matter with you? The question became, what matters to you in terms of your care? But, and I, th I think we, we've seen how um, kindness has really kind of been a value that's been front of mind, particularly in end of life care. So, so I think there are different, I think kindness has come through the healthcare system from different places, from quality improvement, from end of life care, and what we learn about compassionate care um, at the end of people's lives. Uh, but, but I think it's also now emerging uh, as a leadership strategy. So NHS England, the Red Cross, uh, the, the, the Leadership Academy um, in the UK, um, all of these organisations have put kindness front and centre of, of, of what they see as effective um, 
leadership. So you've touched largely on kindness for those who are receiving the care. What about, is there an element um, of kindness for those who are um, providing the care? Well, yes, absolutely. And I, and I think, I think what, one of the things that, that, that we're, we're, we're becoming more and more aware of is that doctors and other healthcare professionals under stress are more likely to make mistakes. And I think caring for the workforce, therefore, is not only about um, being kind to colleagues and, and those we work with, but it's, it's, it's also about delivering better care. Um, so if we invest in kindness towards each other as a, as a healthcare workforce, that actually also has an impact on the care that we're able to deliver. Can you talk a little bit about how that might extend to thinking about kindness in health practitioner regulation? If we, if we, if we, if we look at what's, if we look at the changes in, in the healthcare workforce and the focus on kindness and how that relates to our own work in regulation, then I think it, it does raise questions about the kind of people that we, that we recruit into regulation, the kind of skills that they have, the, the skill mix that they have. So, so, so for me, a very practical um, consequence of, of a commitment to a, a, a kindness approach would be that, we, that there is more emphasis on the importance of interpersonal skills, how we communicate as well as what we communicate, that we look carefully at, at our letters, our phone calls, our ways of engaging with all the people that, that are coming into contact with regulators. And that thirdly, we invest in better technology to help us make regulatory decisions faster and more consistently. So that, those would be my three things. Is there a sense that right now there's a reason why this is kindness is more topical, more on the horizon? Do you have any thoughts on whether it has to do with what's going on with COVID or other things? Well, I think I think during COVID we saw how important it was for people to have human contact with other human beings. I mean, I think it it broke the hearts of everyone watching the news when uh, they could see people dying alone, and it was just as concerning and distressing seeing the staff who were trying to save their lives and feeling that they were not giving um, their patients the care because of the, 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 the way the system was under, under pressure. So I, there's no doubt that um, I think that kindness really became important for all the advances we have in technology and medicine. I mean, these are wonderful things, but at the end of the day, no one wants to die alone with a, a with a machine that's helping them breathe. And I think um, uh, I think the issue of kindness, as, as Anna has talked about it, has been simmering there. We've had an increasingly bureaucratized system where we've got a managerialist style of administering our health systems. And I think this has been challenging our whole idea of care and kindness all along, but that really came to the fore as we saw what was happening um, in the in the in the pandemic and with care in the hospitals. Um, so, so for for me, uh, 
I mean, kindness, it, does, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about the patients and families, the staff who are caring for them, or the regulators. Kindness has got to be, it's central to care. So whatever aspect of care you're talking about, I think you really have to get kindness in there as a critical ingredient, along with competence. I don't you know, we don't want kindness crowding out competence. Competence is important as well. And then the other thing, particularly from a regulatory perspective, is accountability. And accountability doesn't mean, you know, doing a John Cleese yelling at Manuel in faulty towers. That's not accountability. Accountability is is asking what happened and seeking truth uh, so that everyone can understand and reflect on what's happening. And I would say, well, well, that's sometimes hard. Um, that's actually kindness in action because everyone needs the truth and to understand what happened. Absolutely. And I, I, th- I, think, I think for me, you know, COVID has amplified our, our general recognition of, of, of society's dependence on the healthcare workforce. Um, I think it's unleashed that, you know, uh, in, in ways, in probably in unprecedented ways. And, and, and actually, you know, we see a kind of wave of gratitude and recognition, you know, of the human cost to those healthcare professionals perhaps in ways that we haven't, haven't seen before. I mean, there's a fantastic documentary by the filmmaker Kevin MacDonald. It's called The Story of Us, and you can find it on YouTube. And it's a film about, it's, it's an absolutely heartbreaking account of the choices faced by healthcare professionals and the impact of the pandemic. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, COVID has triggered that, you know, exhortation to be kind to be kind to others, to be kind to self in a way that we haven't seen on this, on this scale before. As Val said, we could, can all relate to that very much because we see it, we've seen it on the news, we hear it, you know, health professionals in capes and things, sort of this idea of them being our new heroes. If we then step, you know, away from that and look at the regulation of those heroes, and by by the regulation we mean that the organisations that that ensure that those health professionals are safe and qualified to do their job. And that current system that regulates health professionals, do you think that is it is lacking in kindness? Because you've sort of referred to to, to this being a, a, an issue, a hot issue. Would you say there are risks with with the current regulation that that might impact on health professionals or the public? If we wind the clock back to, you know, a, a different era of, of regulation where professions were protecting themselves, you know, um, you know, regulation was run by the professions, decisions were made by the professions, and there was very little input from community uh, or from patients to a system which is which is which is which is very much about putting communities and patients at the center of decision making involving them in those decisions in order to achieve you know what Val you know rightly points out you know that that's the central role of accountability and regulation so we i think we've got a you know we've almost shifted the dial in favor of patients and that's absolutely been the right thing to do but i also think we 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 know more now 
um, if we if we kind of fast forward to 2021, we know more now from the evidence in regulation. We know um, that there are a very small number of of bad practitioners, you know, whether it's Patel in Australia or Shipman in the UK. So so dealing with a you know a a minor one-off complaint where there's no harm to to patients, I think should be different from dealing with a serial killer, that, that, that we don't need the same adversarial approach um, to both. And, and I think that's where um, the kindness agenda really begins to, to take a practical shape, because if we are no longer in that adversarial relationship with somebody who all the evidence says has done something really you know really bad <laughs> if we're not in that in that adversarial relationship then we can be in more of a conversation about the context and about what what's been happening and that's where i think the kindness agenda really starts to have impact on the practicalities of how we communicate um, how we engage and how we try and get more understanding into what's gone wrong. Uh, Val, you also have a long career at looking at regulation probably more broadly from an academic perspective. What's, what's your view on how our current regulatory system treats health practitioners? I, I do think we've got ourselves in a situation of thinking <clears throat> that uh, regulation is either, a, a, you know, a, a nice little informal um, a chat over a cup of tea, and that's an important form of regulation, let me emphasise, and often is the most critical and most common regulatory activity that takes place amongst professionals. I, I remember Jerry Hickson talking about this on one of your earlier podcasts that um, I th amongst doctors you can have um, illness, you can have all sorts of life traumatic life events and really other doctors if they're um, aware and they they take responsibility can actually have a conversation and ease them out of the system or to take a break or get their you know get their acts together etc so that informal level of regulation which is always there needs to be valued and appreciated and 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 implemented unfortunately i think that we've you know, we, I think we've, um, well, I think we've been lazy. I think as professionals in all different areas, we've tended to say, oh, that's not my job. The regulator will do that. And the regulator really has not got the fine-grained understanding of the situation to, to do it. So we we should not, we've got to break away from this notion that we can do it informally as friends almost versus we can do it very formally with an investigation and lawyers and endless forms being, full, being filled out. There are lots of little steps along the way that can, um, can take place. We can increment very slowly. And, and in, in my trade, we call that responsive regulation. We say, let's sit down in the Jerry Hickson style and have a cup of tea. We might be able to sort that out. We might be able to meet with the family, explain what happened and go forward from there. And if that happens, that's fantastic. 
All we're asking is that we prevent future harm and we have done our very best to resolve whatever harm has occurred. But one step up from that might be a professional group. For instance, I think of, uh, you know, root cause analyses of, of, of errors. This uh, this kind of setting is a place where families can be brought in and explanations can be given to families. They can be part of the problem-solving exercise. Now, that can be done within institutions. That's just one little step up from where we were before in that informal setting. The, the key here is the inclusion of family. Um, we then can elevate it to perhaps um, a hospital board or fellow professionals. I think we need to remember today that so much of medicine is moving to be teams. Uh, it's not just one specialist, it's many specialists and, and there are you know, teams who are looking after people. So it's, it's uh, you know, I think it's a real challenge how you get the the nursing board and the surgeons board and, and these different specialist boards to come into play. But eventually you do get to that stage. But my argument would be that a lot of regulation needs to be done at these intermediate levels. And at those intermediate levels, there's always got to be kindness, you know, uh, Kindness is understanding where other people are, are at and taking those steps necessary to improve their situation. Um, so I, I don't know how you can possibly regulate without kindness. Well, I couldn't agree more. I think that's so, so important what you're saying. And I think, you know, when I think about the, the risks of not doing this, you know, when we think about the, you know, the, the loss of good practitioners, to the system, you know, a diminished workforce, particularly in the context of COVID and the pandemic. You know, an investigation doesn't just impact on the individual, it, it impacts on their whole team as well as their families. You know, the knock-on effect in terms of morale and performance and stress and fear, um, you know, going back to my earlier point about, you know, doctors under stress are more likely to make mistakes, that actually if we see this much more as about, you know, a whole systems approach. So, you know, as you say, Val, involving families in, in, in the conversation, sometimes involving other, you know, colleagues, we're bringing humanity and kindness um, and compassion into the conversation because actually, you know, we, we don't want to lose good practitioners. You know, we, we don't want to be um, part of a system that's actually damaging people. Um, but we absolutely do want to be focused on, you know, high quality care. So while we're on the topic of kindness, I wonder if you might be interested in hearing a discussion about when protecting the public is your focus. Listen with me to this clip of Jill Callister, who says we can question the way things work. Things you take as, as clear and unmovable structures and boundaries and processes and procedures can actually be questioned and changed. The world is more fluid under certain circumstances. For that full episode and many more, search for Taking Care in your podcast player and subscribe while you're there. Now let's return to Anna and Val. How do you think we ended up where we are? And I, I wonder whether either of you have any thoughts on how this possible kindness movement might relate to, well, what's often referred to in healthcare as a, a blame culture. 
uh, versus what we hear more and more is a discussion of a just culture approach. I'm very keen to answer this question. I think what's happened is we hear the term uh, neoliberalism thrown around a lot. And I just want to focus on one aspect of this, which has been to, uh, in a way, regulate us all to follow protocols and policies and procedures, um, that this will all happen from the top. And they're given to us often by people who under, don't understand the, the healthcare system. They're not a- active um, practitioners. They haven't got the experience about being a practitioner. They are managers. That's their qualification. And, uh, uh, and of course, they bring strengths. Don't let me suggest that, that they don't. But in their ignorance of the day-to-day activities of doing the job, they can be very coarse and crude in their analysis of what's going on. Um, now, I think they serve a function. I, I, I mean, sometimes we do get into a situation where we're in the courts and we need all that expertise and the toughness that they bring. But I, I think we've let that intrude too much in our education systems, in our health systems, in our care systems in general, in youth justice, um, all of these situations, we have a lot of knowledge and understanding and capacity at the, at the grassroots level. And I think that's been stifled uh, by the, um, uh, you know, by this top down, you will do it this way, follow this form, etc. I mean, I, I had um, uh, a, a recent, I uh, had lived experience with the hospital system just two weeks ago. Um, and I remember having a conversation with my anaesthetist now. Uh, I was sort of a bit out to it then, so I hope I'm reporting this accurately. But I really enjoyed this conversation because he was telling me how they're tailoring anaesthetics to what people's brain waves are doing. So this was very much in the tradition of personalised medicine, which is one of our great leap forwards. But he was talking about how there are uh, some hospitals that want to give protocols for how anaesthetics are administered. So in other words, we're getting this clash between personalised medicine, where my anaesthetist is watching what my brain is doing to give me just the right amount for a very rapid recovery, and he did it very well, I have to say, versus a hospital system that's worrying about um, uh, about legal ramifications, I suppose, and wanting to standardise what's what's happening. So that's, an, that's a very specific example of how professional skill is um, is being diminished or, or um, trampled on, if you like, by a hospital system that wants everything done by rules and books without understanding of the individual patient. And I, I mean, Anna will have more experience of this than, than I, but I'd be interested to know whether Anna sees this in the work that she's doing, this clash of cultures, really. Uh, absolutely. And, and I think that's... And I think, in, I mean, in the UK, I think, I think the narrative, you know, has become, you know, focus around, you know, we, we talk about blame culture versus just culture. But I think, you know, the same roots, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, be, being very rule bound and, uh, you know, bureaucratizing. Everything's about protocols 
uh, and guidelines. And, the, and, 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 and of course, one of the consequences we know of, of that kind of approach is that, you know, the, the, the term defensive medicine, you know, people being afraid that if they, if they step outside of their understanding and delivery of the protocol, that somebody's gonna say, you're wrong, you, you know, we're gonna blame you and, and report you to the regulator. So, so I think I think we have we have built up through, not just through regulation, but through through all sorts of other kind of um, bureaucracies. We have built up a kind of um, a defensiveness in 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 um, healthcare practice, which which has consequences for people because they're afraid to do what they see as the right thing for the patient. Um, sometimes, um, and that's why I, I, you know, I think that the, you know, the growing emphasis on promoting a just culture, which is about, you know, freedom to speak up, um, to report things without fear of personal retribution, supporting people, you know, who are involved in incidents and, and accidents, you know, being, being, you know, calling out unacceptable behavior whether that's whether that's racism or other forms of discrimination so, you know calling calling out unacceptable behavior um, and then designing your system so that it's actually easy to do the right thing rather than the opposite which is often what happens in in overly bureaucratic systems and and in the uk we we've we've got i think what's a wonderful new initiative which is we, we call them freedom to speak up guardians. And they are individuals who are appointed to hospital boards, hospital trusts, and their sole, their sole responsibility is to be there uh, for people who want to, for, for people who are employed in the trust, who, who want to you know, raise a concern, talk about an incident. Um, so, so the idea, I suppose the idea behind it is that rather than suppressing reporting, you're actually celebrating reporting, but at a much kind of, you know, before things are really going wrong. So, you, you, you know, you talk about going upstream and, and finding ways of, you know, giving people confidence to, to talk about things that are difficult, but in a safe environment where they're not going to be blamed. And, 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 and it's, a, I, I mean, I think it's a really good model because it's, it's naming somebody fairly senior in the organization who's, who's giving health uh, care professionals permission to raise concerns uh, and to talk in very practical ways about the things that they feel are worrying to them or that potentially might put patients at risk. So I think we've really learned um, that the blame culture, which which encourages people to be defensive and to not 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 be honest and not be <laughs> not be kind uh, in many in many situations. I think I think that's now being pushed pushed out by the by the by the by the the just culture, and I think that has to be a good thing for patients as well as for professionals. I, th I think the near miss and the um, conversations and the speaking up guardian 
uh, serve a very important function for hospitals and for health centres as learning cultures too. So when so much as so much is happening, so much discovery is happening in the health sector, uh, encouraging that learning culture, I think is, is very important. But I also think we need to look at the other end, and, and this is more our experience than yours, Anna. We've had some royal commissions. We, we seem to do a lot of royal commissions in this country, but we had one in aged care, and it was one that I was um, in, involved in. In fact, I sat and listened to evidence by um, uh, consumers who uh, made complaints to the regulator, the aged care regulator, about the care that their um, family member was receiving. Uh, and the story was that the regulator actually rang the provider. The regulator didn't ever get back to the consumer, the person making the, correct, the, the, the complaint or, uh, yes, the complaint. Um, it was all, the conversation was between the regulator and the provider. And uh, so in this situation, well, it's a terrible story where you, you can't help but think of capture in this situation. Can I just get you to unpack that a little bit when you talk about for what, because that's a term that is probably quite familiar to you, but maybe not familiar to everybody else. When you speak about capture, um, what do you mean in that context? We look to a regulator to, to keep us safe. And if we make a complaint to a regulator, we expect them to look into it um, with a, a view to, to, to satisfying our complaint, to being focused on us and what's happening to our loved one um, in the nursing home in this particular instance. Now, if we find, and, and not that the consumers who gave evidence at the Royal Commission knew this until the Royal Commission took place, but if we discover that instead of contacting us immediately and doing the detective work, finding out what happened, the, the regulator instead rings the provider and says, we've had a complaint about you, et cetera. Then one has a very strong sense that it's not your interests that are being taken care of. There's a, um, a, a relationship between the regulator and the provider that is regarded as more important than the relationship that you have with the regulator. And in that situation, you suspect capture. Um, by capture, I mean that the regulator is not serving um, the, the mission, there's not performing the, the function that they really should be forming. They are actually being um, uh, almost corrupted, if you like, um, through their uh, view that the, um, in this case, the provider um, uh, has, uh, should be listened to first. Now, you can see how this happens, but it's not a good thing to happen. It's not uh, desirable. One would want the regulator to, the first phone call we'd want that regulator to make is to the person making the complaint, and we want it to happen as soon as possible. Yeah, so that they understand what's going on, so that they're heard. I think I think it's also though you know it's this adversarial culture that we that we that, that's been the dominant the dominant culture that says you know defend and deny um, close ranks you know rather than the you know the conversational uh, approach which is about honesty transparency learning from errors and kindness and humanity so you know the first and most important person is is the patient and their family, and therefore, you know, 
we should be driven to, you know, lift the phone, make the call to the patient first, rather than, you know, rely on that kind of adversarial defend and deny, close ranks, find out what's going on, and then go back, you know, in the expectation that there is going to be some kind of adversarial process. And there may not be, because actually that may not be what the patient wants, what the patient needs, what their family want. They may actually want a conversation. Well, I wonder, Anna, that, that idea of closing ranks, which we all, something we've all heard of um, in healthcare when something goes wrong, you know, where has, does that go back to this blame culture or does it come from regulation? I just wonder what, what's the, uh, what's, where did that begin and what do we do maybe to, um, to stop it? Because one could always say, well, it's just, you know, I have to do this because the regulator or the regulator might say, well, we have to, we can't be kind because we've got these risks. What do you think is the balance there? So, I mean, actually, one of the things when I was thinking about today, you know, I, I went right back to, um, to Charles Dickens and Bleak House and, and other, other of his novels, which were all about the relationship between society and the law. And, and one of the things that, you know, Charles Dickens talks about is the law as a monstrous maze. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I'm sure, in fact, I know because I've listened to people, you know, describing the process, you know, of, of you know, the, the regulatory process as a total maze, you know, uh, you know, not knowing where it's going or what it means or how it relates to their own experience. So, so I think, I think, you know, if you, if you, you know, think about where regulation has come from, you know, that it is a, you know, quasi judicial process that it's that it's got some of the vestiges of that monstrous maze somewhere in there. You know, we use lots of jargon. We use very legalistic language. We we make it inaccessible. Um, when you know, we don't have as a priority. You know, responding quickly to a notification. We don't have as a priority communicating you know, with the people involved, you know, they're left in the dark sometimes for weeks and months before before we engage with them. Val, did you want to add something to that? The way that Anna is talking about regulation is the way that most of your listeners will be, and I acknowledge that, but I see it quite differently. Um, many years ago, uh, I had a, um, a student who did a PhD on emotional work and, uh, and in the health se uh, sector, uh, Lyndall Strastons, actually, who is now a professor of public health at ANU. And Lyndall found there were three dimensions to emotional work, which, of course, is what health practitioners among other people are doing all the time. One of those dimensions was providing support. Another dimension was just enjoying the company of other people, things that I'm sure all of you will relate to as part of, of what you do in health services. But the third dimension, and this caused Lindor great anxiety, it was really regulation. It was preventing people from doing things that would harm others or harm themselves. So my, I have a view of regulation as something that we do each and every day. And the better we do it, the less we have need for formal legal regulators as Anna and others conceive them. Uh, and my view is that what we need to do is strengthen that informal regulation. We all need to continue to do our 
good emotional work to look after each other and basically put that formal regulator that Anna's talking about back in their box. So that would be my take, uh, which ends up in a similar place to Anna, but through a slightly different route. No, that, that's fascinating. But I mean, I suppose, I suppose when, for me, it, it comes down to, it comes down to kind of values and style as well, though, because I think those who have kind of grown up and into a very legalistic form of, you know, delivery, which, you know, which to me are about those things, you know, inaccessible language, poor response times, you know, peace, piecemeal communication. I think for me, those are the things that we really need to change and say, you know, this is not, this is, this is not okay. You know, it's not okay for, you know, regulatory teams not to explain, not to be accessible, not to put the patient first, not to put the family first. And that's not, not, not to blame any individual regulatory or notification you know, team, it's not, I think it's in the culture. I think it's where we've come from. And I think it was, it was acceptable, you know, in a, in a previous time. I think it's not, I think it's not acceptable now. So, so, so I agree with you. I just, I just think we need to change processes and, and put, if you like, new values to the fore of regulation, values like kindness um, uh, um, which which help to to change behaviour because I think if you if you if you you, you know the, the very kind of act of thinking and talking about kindness actually encourages us to be kinder and that then translates into actions and you know letters and phone calls and and how we how we engage with people so just just to give you a, a very specific example. You know, of a letter that went from a member of the reg a regulatory uh, staff member to the parents of um, uh, bereaved parents, uh, parents who'd lost their, their their child in a road traffic accident, explaining that the the health professional on the scene at the time was not responsible for their death, which was true, but but the way that letter was put together. Um, and actually, you could see that it had been cut and pasted from other letters about similar cases. So the font size was different. Um, it just was clearly had been put together in a great rush um, and sent off without any sense of how that letter would land with those parents and what impact that was going to have on on them. You know, who who were who were dealing with you know, grief after such a traumatic experience. And so that for me, you know, is, is, a, is a really good example of how we've allowed, you know, the kind of legalistic, um, slightly mechanistic um, uh, ways of working, you know, almost, almost become the dominant um, because, you know, we, because people are in a hurry and they've got lots of other things to do. But, yeah. It's just not okay to, to 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 send a letter like that to 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 bereaved parents. That and how you know how we challenge that and how we change that, I think, is at the heart of this kindness narrative. 
Anna, that, that's a letter that should never go out. And I think it's a responsibility for all of us to call it for what it is. That, that's a, an act of cruelty. It's not absence of, of kindness. It is an act of cruelty. Um, and by calling it out, hopefully we will see change in those um, totally depersonalised um, practices that I think can arise probably in any bureaucracy. I think we see the same thing in, in the child protection system. We certainly do in Australia, uh, where parents don't understand the letters and the instructions they're receiving. Um, children are taken from parents um, in the middle of the night uh, to great distress of, of all concerned. So these acts of cruelty um, uh, are justified by law, but law does not have to be cruel. We can actually implement the law, I think, with, with, with kindness, as you would say. I wouldn't want to blame the individual who wrote that letter, who was probably fairly inexperienced, who was, you know, who was probably pressurized, probably had many other things to do. But but I would I would call out the system that allowed that to happen uh, and and for that to be acceptable. I think I think you know we have to take you know shared responsibility for those kind of things and say, well what as a system, what you know, what what do we need to do to make sure that never ever happens? Um, and for me, it does come back to, you know, putting, you know, the values of kindness at the centre, you know, and that's about being kind to yourself, taking responsibility, trusting others, recognising and celebrating uh, kindness, and then, and then noticing and questioning values. And that's using restorative practices and restorative practice conferences um, in these kinds of contexts to, uh, to bring the patient to the centre, first of all, to practice kindness uh, and yet uh, ensure that accountability occurs and lessons are learned. There's a, there's a lot of conversation going on about this in, in every country, uh, but we're not seeing a lot of action to my knowledge uh, on it. But I, I think it is a way of regulating. It's a, uh, it is a regulatory measure that uh, really promises a way forward and a way of addressing some of these issues that Anna raises of, of great concern. And I agree, Val. And I, I mean, I think, you know, going back to Charles Dickens and his monstrous maze, <laughs> I think it's, you know, it, it's bringing us out of the maze. And, and, and that's what we all want, you know, but patients, families, health practitioners, and, and those of us who care passionately about, about regulation and making it better. So do you see that as the is that the is that the future? Do you think? What well, what is the future for kindness in healthcare regulation? It's being more nuanced, so not seeing you know one size fits all um, processes. It's being more data driven and evidence based. So looking at our data and using that to inform us on how and where we make interventions. It's being less adversarial um, in our approach. In terms of the future, I, I'm really proud of the Nursing and Midwifery Council in, in the U, UK because 
every email they send at the very bottom, it says, we as an organization want to be fair, kind, ambitious, and collaborative. So they have put kindness absolutely as one of their central values as a regulator. And I, I, I'm just immensely proud of that because I, I do think that putting kindness alongside, you know, um, the desire to be fair, always to be fair, to be ambitious and collaborative is, is where it should be. It's, it's up there. It's as important um, as our, our, our duty to be fair and our duty to be accountable. So for me, that's, that's what the future looks like. You know, front and centre, kindness matters. It matters for regulators too. What about you, Val? I'd put it to you that you never get truth if you aren't kind. It's through kindness that you enable people to, to tell you what's happening, to share their concerns and their, 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 um, their mistakes, basically. Um, so I would hope we go in that direction and that we see that this current trend we have to sitting in offices, collecting data, getting people to, you know, tell their their stories by filling out endless forms. I, well, there's a place for that and there's a time for that. I think that uh, that the urgent thing is to get in there when the complaint is made and talk to people. We are actually all regulators and we all have capacity to steer the flow of events in ways that, are, that will provide better healthcare. And we shouldn't step back from our responsibility to do that because we can do it in a caring way. Actually, the health professional is probably better equipped than most because they're dealing with, uh, as, as Anna was saying, very stressful situations. They know how to be kind when people are, are in the depths of despair. So this skill um, is one that means that they themselves are, are excellent regulators of not only themselves but each other and we should be using that capacity. Val and Anna, thank you for your generosity today as we have explored this question of, of kindness in healthcare regulation and particularly that, that balance that ensures that kindness for practitioners doesn't come at the cost of safety for patients. So I think this is an important conversation about something that we really need to get right. So thank you both for being here. Thank you, Susan. It's lovely talking to you, Anna. Lovely. Well, thank you so much. Really enjoyed the conversation. And thank you all for joining us for today's conversation. Please subscribe to Taking Care in your podcast player so that you can get all the latest episodes and even to have a wander through our archives for more interesting conversations. Email us at communications at opera.gov.au if you have any questions or comments or you just want to get in touch. See you next time.